obey of all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. This is God's word for us, and I want us to look at these two verses in particular and see how the verses in between kind of flesh out an understanding of what it means to be joyfully obedient. Right, both of these verses speak about doing the statutes and rules that the Lord commands. And verse 1 says, do the statutes and rules, be careful to do them in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. You see, God had freed his people from bondage, was leading them to a land. He said, I am your God, you are my people, this is your land. All of those things happened before God says, obey. God did not say, obey these rules so that I will be your God. Obey these rules so that you will be my people. Obey these rules and then I'll give you a land. That's not what happens at all. God says, I am your God, you are my people, I'm setting you free, I'm giving you a land. Now, obey. Verse 28 says, be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. You see, God goes on to say through Moses and writing this down in the scriptures that, hey, obey everything that I command you and things will go well for you and for your children. There's going to be a legacy of goodness because of obedience. And so you and I today look at this scripture see what does this have to do uh, with God's people Israel in the Old Testament and what does this have to do with you and I today? I want to ask you this question. When it comes to obeying the commands of the Lord, when it comes to obeying God's word, is there any joy there for you? Is there any joy in obedience, or is it obligatory, or is it hard, or is it uh, easy to dismiss and say, no thanks? Because I think the problem that Israel faced, and is a common problem for you and I today, is finding joy in obeying the Lord. In fact, God wants his people to be joyful. He wants our ultimate joy to be found in him through Christ. Our ultimate joy as God's people is found in our relationship with God, Express through a relationship with each other, obeying what God has for us, living the way the Lord commands for his people to live. And when we look at scripture, oftentimes we can say, you know, obedience is too hard, I'd rather just not deal with it. Or, you know, I'm obeying God because I'm afraid of judgment. Or maybe I'm obeying God because I'm obligated to it. It's heavy and it's burdensome and it's joyless. But I want us to look at three verses we're going to tile these together, and I'm hopping around quite a bit. So, so verse 1 and verse 28 both say, Obey the Lord your God, things will go well for you. I want us to look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Look down at verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that was within your towns, he shall have no portion or inheritance with you. Look at verse 18. It says, You shall eat them before the Lord your God, in the place where the Lord your God will choose, and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Three times within uh, these set of verses today, we see God saying, hey, obey me and rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Have joy. May your life, your heart be exceeding joy as you obey 
And so we see the problem here is joylessness and worship. Joylessness and stewarding resources and opportunities. Joylessness in a community together. This was Israel's problem. This is the problem you and I have today. It's funny because it's a problem that God's people have. Do you notice that? I mean, the Lord is commanding this of his people, the people who he has rescued. Don't you think they should just automatically have joy? I mean, God's saying, hey, I'm your God. Right there, you should be joyful. God's saying, hey, you're my people. That should evoke joy. God's like, hey, I set you free. Isn't that a joyful thing? God's like, I'm giving you a land. Shouldn't there just be joy automatically there? I mean, God's not commanding the pagan cultures to be joyful. In fact, they're probably finding joy elsewhere. The irony here is that God's people, you and I included, tend to have a joyless faith. We tend to have joyless worship. We tend to have joyless stewardship. We tend to have a joyless community because our hearts need to be reinvigorated with the gospel of Jesus constantly. And that's what I want us to see in this passage today. Because I think God is teaching Israel something here, and he's teaching us something as well in Christ of what it means to be joyfully obedient in worship and stewardship as a community together. My goal is not to be very practical, practical only and say, hey, do this, do this, and then you'll have joy. But rather, my goal is to expose the goodness of God for his people, and in that we find joy. And out of that, obedience happens. So first, I want us to look at joyful obedience. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 together. It says, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you, are, that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Here we see a picture of God's people worshiping Him, commanded to do so in joy. To rejoice and worship. You see, God says, go into that land and destroy the idols. That's what He says, verses 2 and 3. Go in there, destroy the idols, tear down their altars, Everything that is an idol, a false idol that's stealing your attention and joy from God, tear it down. Go into that land. I'm giving you that land. Those people are fleeing. But you cannot move into the land and adopt the cultural and spiritual idols that are there. Tear them down. Destroy them. Rid them. That's the first thing. Destroy the idols. Second, he says this. Seek the Lord. Verse 5 says, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes, to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. God says, look, destroy the idols and then seek me. Seek me. And then verse 7, rejoice. 
So I think there's a lot there for you and I to, to kind of take in. I mean, God is commanding Israel to do this, to show a display of where ultimate joy is. God's saying, look, you're not going to find joy only by being free from the past. It's part of it, but not only that. You're not going to find joy only by the location of the present that I've given you. He says, there's still work to be done to have joyful worship. You have to rid this place of idols. I mean, don't you think... Don't you wonder, I mean, this is what I wonder this week, don't you wonder why God didn't promise for the land that was, like, already available? I mean, this real estate was occupied, and they had to run people out. Don't you wonder, like, why God said, hey, go, go to that land? Don't you, don't you wonder how come God didn't give them a, a blank slate to start? I mean, I think part of it is so that there would be ongoing trust and obedience for God's people here. That's so what God says, go into that land. I'm giving you the land, it's your land, but we have a little housework to do. I mean, there's still some altars there that need to be torn down. There's still some idols that need to be chopped down. There's still some uh, wicked things that need to be destroyed. So God says, do that. But it's not enough just to rid the place of idols. You have to seek the Lord. Seek. You seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. He will make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you will rejoice. So, let's just pause for a minute and see what does this mean for you and I. Alright, we see that Israel is moving into this land and God's not giving us the land. He's not saying go over to Montclair and like, you know, get rid of that idolatrous playground and then set up a revival service. That's not what God's saying. But I think there's some implications here for you and I today as God is showing what he did as a good and holy God to bring joyful worship to his people. It involves tearing down idols, it involves seeking the Lord, and it involves rejoicing. So I want us to see what does that mean for me and you today. I, I seriously doubt, it may be possible, but I seriously doubt uh, any of you are going to go home to a neighborhood where statues are wanting you to worship them. Idols look different in our culture today, but they are still very much there. Idols can be cultural, they can be spiritual. Idols can be uh, very tangible things like, like money and stuff. Idols can be things like the attitude of your heart, like if you want attention, if you want to be famous, if you want to do whatever those things. Anything that steals the joy that you're going to have in Christ is an idol. Anything that says, hey, seek me and you will find joy, if it's not Christ, it's an idol. And it's the nature of idols to destroy the hearts of their worshipers. So if we're going to pursue being a joyful people in Christ, I want us to pause and say, what, what idols are stealing our joy, our attention, our affection from the Lord? What is it for you? It could be something very, very wicked. It could actually be something very good, like a career, or even like humanitarian aid, or whatever. It could be very good things. You should pursue a career. You should seek to serve others. You should have ambitions. But if those ambitions become your ultimate attention and affection other than Christ, it's an idol. So what idols are in your life that need to be destroyed and rid of? And, and where are you seeking and pursuing the Lord to find your ultimate joy? How are we doing that as a church community? I mean, churches, com community speaking, can have idols too. I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't think it's the case, but just a fair warning. Buildings can be an idol for a church. And God has been very gracious to give us a building that we will be moving into in just a few weeks by, by His grace. It's going to be awesome. But I want us to preemptively 
posture our hearts and minds toward Christ and not toward the building. The building is not an idol for us to worship and serve. It's a tool that God has given us for the furtherance of his kingdom. Just put that in there. I don't think there's any idols in there, statues we need to chop down or burn, but if there are, let's do it. Right? So what idols are in your life that need destruction? And how are you seeking joy and pursuing God? How are we doing that? as a church, because that is what God was doing for his people Israel. I see that that's what he has us to do as well. Secondly, I want us to see this. You see that God is commanding not only joyful worship, but joyful stewardship. Stewardship. Now, before you pump the brakes and say, wait, preachers talk about money. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about stewarding the resources that that God has and he's letting you borrow. Like it may be your house, it may be your money, it may be your car, it may be your boat, it may be some land you have. It may be some gifts that you have. Maybe you're a very gracious host. Maybe you're a very gifted communicator. Maybe you're a very strong, skilled servant in some area. Maybe you have relationships and connections that God has laid before you that other people don't have. Those are resources, those are things for you to steward. God already said this here. He says, look, you're going to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices and tithes and the contributions that you will present, vow offerings, free will offerings, the firstborn of the herd of your flock. God has already said in the first set of verses here, hey, you're going to be worshiping me by stewarding things and giving tithes and gifts. Look what he says in verse 8. You shall not... You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. You have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in that land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, when he gives you rest from all the enemies around so that you will live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, the Levite within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. You shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. You see, God says, look, I want you to worship and enjoy, not idols. Destroy the idols, tear the idols down, seek me, find joy in me, and worship. Be a worshiping people, a joyfully worshiping people, but also be joyful stewards. As you bring offerings and tithes and all these sacrifices, he says, do these things, bring your finest sacrifices to me, and there you shall rejoice. But we have to see it within the context. God's not saying just just do these things. The reason God is commanding joyful stewardship is to remind his people that that is not their permanent home. Do you see that? I mean, he even says in verse 9, it says, you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. He's saying, look, there is a directional purpose for your offerings and tithes and gifts. As you steward what I am giving you, there is a direction to how you use it. You are not going to offer them up in the temporary dwellings, but you're going to do it in a, in a kingdom-minded, eternal way. See, the whole story of the exodus to the promised land is really a big foreshadowing of the gospel in Jesus Christ for us. You know that, right? 
I mean, just as God set Israel free from Egypt to lead them to a land of promise, God sets us free in Christ to dwell eternally with Him. And in between, there's time of testing and obedience and, and all that. And that's what we're seeing here. God is saying, hey, look, you've not yet come to that rest. There's an inheritance I have for you as my people. And, and all how you steward your everything, your, your, your money, your contributions, your offerings, as you steward your flock, even as you steward the family and servants within your household, how you relate to them is a, is a forward-thinking, eternally focused stewardship. Are you following me? God's not just saying, hey, drop your 10% in the basket and walk away. He's saying, as you give and as you steward, as you make decisions financially and with your servants, think kingdom-mindedly, think eternally. Think, this is not our home now, but that's our home there. How can we use this to honor Jesus as we are going that way? Right? To, to put it into like a common vernacular, be like, like God saying, because um, he says, hey, look, you shall rejoice before the, the Lord, your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, the Levite within your town. He's saying, hey, look, it's like, it would be like saying, hey, as your family, as you were leading your family, make sure they have a, a, an eternally kingdom-minded focus as you are leading them with decisions you make, as you are taking care of your business. I mean, I don't, hopefully you do not use the language of, hey, at the business I have male servants and female servants. If you're like a businessman, don't use that language. It's kind of creepy and I'm sure it's illegal, actually. So just, you know, if you have employees that are working for you or with you that you are leading, there's a way to steward those relationships. And then there's some very tangible, very tangible monetary situations here, too. I'm not going to sidestep that one. God says, hey, look, when you bring your, your tithes, that was, that was 10% of your income, when you bring your vow offerings, when you bring your sacrifices, I mean, they were... They were already giving a lot, and God is saying, do so joyfully. Rejoice as you give, because you are leading and pointing others toward an eternal resting place. So friends, you and I look at that and we say, well, well Jeremy, I don't have flocks, I don't have male servants and female servants. What is a Levite? What is he talking about? There's so much there, and I wish we could spend you know, weeks studying all of the intricacies of the Old Testament but alas, this time is meant to be an overview to lead us to Christ, and I hope and pray that you study more. I mean, I will give you resources and talk with you. If you want to go deeper with Deuteronomy, I encourage you to. But we, we want to see where this is leading, where this is pointing. See, for you and I, we often have a hard time being, being stewards because we think like owners. We don't think that we're stewards because we own stuff. Like all the money you have in the shores because you earned it. You own that money. The house you live in, you bought it, which is your house. But we often think that way because we think that, hey, this is our home. We're seeking comfort, we're seeking convenience, we're seeking pleasure, we're seeking wealth because we're putting down our roots, man. This is our home. And all the while, God's picture of redemption is that we are not home yet. We are on a journey. And this is just our temporary dwelling. In fact, the house you have is not yours to own. It is yours to steward. God gave you the house. Sure, he may have given you money because you worked somewhere, but it's still God's money. And he gave it to you through your employer so that you could buy a house. And that's great, but that house is not your house. It's God's house. You just live there. So how are you using that house? 
to minister to your sons, your daughters, male servants, female servants, you're following with me, right? I mean, the car you drive, the land you may have, the, the job you have, how are you stewarding that job? It's a way to get money, but God has placed you in your workplace as an ambassador of good news. I'm very thankful if you like your job. I'm very thankful if you get paid well. In fact, I hope you get paid well. I hope you exceed in your career, but the excellence in your career is not only, not only for your monetary compensation, but it is because God has placed you there for influence for the gospel. Maybe he's placed you in a job so you can make decisions to kind of give people a foreshadowing of God's goodness and where we're headed. I don't know what that looks like for you. I can openly talk about the gospel in my job because I work here. Not at this school, but I work for this church. So it's very easy for me. Maybe different for you. So, we struggle with stewardship because we think if we can acquire and own and get stuff, we will find comfort and rest and convenience. But look what God says about that in verse 9. He says, you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in that land where the Lord your God has given you to inherit, when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell, you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, confirmation, you present the finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. You see, the whole goal of stewardship is to show that we are not resting in our things, but we find ultimate rest in God. And that's what, what God is saying here. He says, hey, look, that land that you inherited, inherit that, you will come to rest there. There is rest in the Lord. God gives rest. That's what he says in verse 10. God gives you rest. And friends, if we, how we operate with resources money and responsibilities and opportunities is a reflection of where we find our rest. If you go to work tomorrow and you are seeking to acquire money and use people so that you can find rest, you're missing the gospel. But if you go to work tomorrow and say, how can I, I don't want to use people and get money, but rather I want to, I want to use money and maybe serve people somehow, knowing that the rest is not in my status here, my rest is not in my finances here, my rest is not in my security here, my rest is ultimately in Christ, so how can I steward this now to really reflect that I'm trusting that my rest is in Christ? Are you tracking with me? This is hard for us to do. It's really hard for us to do. In fact, it's a hard challenge for us to even go as far as say, hey, whatever you make, put 10% in an offering plate. That's hard, right? You're saying, how do, why would preachers say put 10% of my money? What does he want my money? I don't want your money. I don't need your money. It's not my money. It's not your money. I'm not asking for your money. I'm encouraging your obedience because I want you, I want me, I want my family, I want this community to find our ultimate rest, our ultimate joy in Christ. I want us to be stewards of everything we have. Saying, look, man, my house is not mine. My house is God's house. I'm so thankful I get to sleep there. I want to have you over so I can show God's goodness in our home. Many of you guys do that, by the way. That's awesome. Somebody had us over to dinner last night. They stewarded their home and their awesome hamburgers and hot dogs. It was jamming, and it was showing God's goodness, right? Hamburgers. Oop, oop. Matthew 11:28. Jesus says this. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a promise from Jesus. I will give you rest. Your bank account will not give you rest. In fact, it will make you work hard. The more you get, the harder you have to work to maintain what you get. Your house will not give you rest. That's a fact. Roofs leak, toilets overflow. You work hard to maintain it. Right? Who gives rest? Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle, lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. I want rest, don't you? God's people wanted rest. And Israel, they're like, hey, God, we were in bondage for a couple generations. Give us rest. God sets them free. And they're like, God, we've been walking around the wilderness for almost four decades. Give us rest. And God is saying, look, your acquisition of wealth and resources will not give you rest. I will give you rest. Therefore, use what you have as stewards to point to me. So friends, where are you seeking rest? What is robbing you of rest? What is robbing you of joy? How are you seeking where the Lord is so that you can find your true rest? Because God is wanting his people to be joyfully worshipers of him, joyful stewards, and wants also to be in a joyful community together. Look at this in verse 15 through 18. This is where it gets really tricky, and you've got to track along with me. Because like, what is it going to Verse 15. However, you may slaughter and eat meat with any of your, within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God has given you. The unclean and the clean you may eat of it as the gazelle and as of the deer, only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the earth like the water. Kind of gross, but keep going. You shall not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or the wine or the oil, the firstborn of your herder or of your flock or of any of your offerings that you vow, the free will offerings, the contribution that you present. You shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your town and you shall rejoice before the Lord and all that you undertake. Let's stop there for a second. What happens here in Scripture is you see that God wants his people to be joyful worshipers, joyful stewards, but not by themselves. God is leading his people, he's forming his people, plural, as a community, as a family together. In Deuteronomy, we see the, the record of God instituting new feasts and festivals and um, communal times together. We see this throughout the Old Testament. It gets really confusing if you look at it. Um, you know, God had just freed them out of Egypt and, and institutes the Passover meals, a time for them to feast together to say, look, look who God is and what he's done. Look who we are as his people. Let's feast in remembrance. It's, it's a communal time to celebrate who God is and who they are together. And we tend to be isolationists who won't be left alone. And God says, look, you can't be, you need to be joyful worshipers, joyful stewards, and you have to be a joyful community together. That is why God institutes all of these feasts. And, and that's why verse 18, he says, You shall eat before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter. He's like, look, I want you to feast together with your family. There's something biblical about eating a meal with your family. Did you know that? There's more going on at your dinner table than just you getting food in your belly. So I would encourage you to not eat in front of the TV with your dinner tray, but get around the table. Have some conversation. And in that meal, 
you were, you were celebrating God's goodness to your family as a community. We see in verse 18, he says, look, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, that's a, a priestly guy. That doesn't mean everybody has to have the pastor over to dinner, but if you want to take it like that, feel free. <laughs> when he says the Levite needs to come over, we need to have the cars over to dinner. Yes, I'm just kidding. I'm not a Levite. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in the land. Verse 20, when the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave me, you may eat meat whenever you desire. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> when you say, I will eat meat, that's biblical. Is this somebody's life verse? My favorite verse in the Bible is, I will eat meat. Amen. The Lord is with you. There's something biblical about feasting together. And God is saying, I want my people to be joyful worshipers, joyful stewards. I want them to feast together as a joyful community with their sons, their daughters, their co-workers, the folks that are in their ministry. And then he says, when I enlarge their ter territory, this is what's neat about biblical concepts of territory and land. It doesn't, it, it often means just like, you know, the land, like the earth, like more acreage. But sometimes it incorporates the people that are already in that land. Like for God to say, I'm going to enlarge your territory is not just to give more acreage, but to like add people to the community. Do you know that? Pretty cool, huh? So God's like, hey, when I enlarge your territory, if there are people in there that are coming in, they're going to be a part of this community, and you want to feast? Man, feast. It shows my goodness to my people. When you have folks on the periphery that want to hop into this community, feed them and tell them how good I am. And there's much joy in eating together. Did you know that? It's so biblical. If, if everybody can do that one thing this afternoon, go eat and just thank the Lord for the goodness that he is pouring out on you. Because the scriptures are full of feasting. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, Lord's Supper, in fact, the book of Revelation closes with a huge wedding feast as a sign of God's goodness for eternity. Verse 28, Be careful to obey all that I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. So where does this leave me and you in Christ? Right? This is my favorite part, so hang with me. It's about to get awesome. It's already good, it's going to get awesome. The scriptures. Because God wants us to be joyful worshipers. Joyful stewards. He wants us to be a joyful community. And this is what he wants for Israel. And this is showing us something about who we are in Christ. I don't want us to stop here and say three things. Smile and clap when you sing. Um, give more money. And have somebody over to eat once a week. I could really give you that three-part to-do list, but it wouldn't really change I don't want to give us a to-do list of how to fake being joyful worshipers or joyful stewards or joyful community. I want us to see God's goodness so that we are wrecked by the good news of Jesus, transformed to be joyful worshipers in a joyful community and joyful stewards. I don't want to burden you with a to-do list. I want to show you how good God is in Christ. So as we look at this and say, I, I, you know, because this is a, a descriptive thing of what God was doing for his people, and I want to say, if you're here today, it's my hope that you want to be a joyful worshiper. I'm just assuming that's what you want to do, right? I mean, you may have come in like burdens and like, oh, I hate singing. 
Or talk about money. Oh, goodness, let me get out of here. The meat part I get, but everything else. <laughs> the gospel according to Romans. Right. Here's what I want us to take away. It is my hope and prayer that we want to be joyful worshipers, joyful stewards, joyful community. Is that your prayer? Is that your hope? I can't give us a to-do list, but I want to give us another passage to look at. Check this out. My mind's about to be blown again. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42-47. May be a familiar passage to you, but we're going to slow down one particular verse and hopefully get excited together. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. God's Holy Spirit is like, I mean, Jesus, Jesus had died, was buried, resurrected, like commissioned his disciples. Hey, at the beginning of Acts 1, he like ascends to heaven to be with the Father. Like crazy stuff. He says, hey, look, I'm pouring out my spirit. Go preach to all nations. Tell them about my goodness. The Holy Spirit's going to do some radical things. So keep your eye out for that. Acts chapter 2, we hear like one of the coolest sermons ever. Just read all of chapter 2 as a response to the Holy Spirit moving in that gospel moment. This is what happens. Acts 2.42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread with prayers and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't that a cool picture? Let's look at one verse, just one verse. Because I want to be joyfully worshiping, joyful community, joyful stewardship. Look at verse 46 as an example. Day by day they attended the temple together. Oh, they were worshiping. Breaking bread in their homes. What? Breaking bread in their homes. They were eating. They were having community together. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Stewardship? What? Just that one verse shows what happens. And the rest of that verse kind of unpacks what goes on. They were devoted to the scriptures, to fellowship. They were eating together. They were all came upon every soul. They had things in common. That does not mean they were communists. People still had homes. People still had stuff. But they, they shared a lot. They were overwhelmingly generous. And that's what I love about verse 46. It doesn't say, well, they wanted to follow Jesus, so they had a checklist of the generous things that they ought to do. No. They had glad and generous hearts. Man, their souls were transformed with the good news. I'm not going to give you a checklist. In fact, it would be worse if we had a phony, false, begrudgingly obligatory checklist of do good things. It would not reflect the goodness of God. It would not further the gospel of Jesus. It would just harden people's hearts by phoniness. I don't want you to do good things with a hard heart. I'd rather you not do them. I want us to have glad and generous hearts. That's not going to happen by doing some checklist out of obligation. I want us to have awe when we look at who God is and what he's done. I want us to see God doing amazing things. I want us to believe together and worship together and give together and just be together with joy. With joy. And the only way that that can happen 
is a humble plea to the Lord. God, do something. I'm a grumpy person. I do not like certain kinds of music early in the morning. If the sun's not up yet and I'm driving down the road, I do not put on Christian music. It makes me angry. I'm not a joyful worshiper at 7 a.m. And that's not, that's not a good thing. I want to wake up with joy. I want to be like, God, I'm breathing. Thank you, Lord. Woo! But I don't wake up that way. Just ask my wife, or my kids, or my neighbors, or Ben. When I come to the office, I'm like, hey, Ben. Ben's like, Jeremy. I'm like, ah, leave me alone. And we're not meeting until 2 in the afternoon, dude. Just leave me alone. I desperately want to have a joyfully worshiping heart first thing in the morning. You can pray that for me. It'd, be, it'd, it'd wreck our family if I was in a good mood in the morning. <laughs> what happened to our dad? Who is this man? He's a Cylon. Oh. <laughs> it is my hope and prayer that you want to be a joyful worshiper. I do. Joyful stewardship. I'll be honest with you, there's a basket in the back, and sometimes when money's tight and the tax return hadn't come in yet, it's kind of hard to give money in it. It's kind of hard to say, I don't really know where this money's going. Sometimes when you go out to eat, it's kind of hard to tip that 20% or 25% because the server wasn't really that good. I want to challenge you to tip 20% at least, even if the service is awful. Why? Because we're going to be a people who are reflecting the grace of God. Does that person deserve that tip if they gave you bad service? No, they don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. Let's like outgrace everybody else. Like, would you, can you imagine, like, how it would blow somebody's mind if they're like, you know, just threw your peas on the table, here, fuck out, that's bad, bro. And then they walk away, they cash out, and you give them like a $20 tip. Oh, that would wreck, that would wreck the server. I was a server for four years, man. It would wreck them with the gospel. Show them some grace. I want to be good stewards, man. Can you imagine what would happen if we were just overly generous with the resources we have? As a church, I'm hoping that we would be overly generous with the building that God is giving us on Broad Street. I want it to be a place where we can worship and grow as disciples and, and be joyful worshipers in a joyful community. But I also want it to be a, a tool, a resource to show God's goodness to a, to a city that, that just needs it. Augusta needs it, man. Augusta needs it because there are people that don't know the goodness of God. They don't know the gospel. They don't know what grace is. There are people that are totally just so far from the Lord. There are also people that think they're close to the Lord because they do a checklist. They need grace too. I want us to have this opportunity together. I want us to be a joyful community. I want us to enjoy each other's company, not because we're the same, but because we're different and because we see God's grace applied in our lives differently. I do not want us to be a homogenous church by any means. I don't want us to come to the table with the same sins and the same nonsense. Like, I want us to come together and say, we look nothing alike, we act nothing alike, we talk differently, we eat different food, we're different ages, different ethnicities. My sin looks like this, your sin looks like that. Let's be a community, let's come together and look to grace together. That's what I want to see. It's not... It's not fun to be a church where everybody has the same sin, because then it's like, okay. And the second somebody walks in with a different sin, you're like, oh, that person needs to repent. I want to see some wicked, dirty sins. I, mean, I really do. That sounds weird. But, but I want us to be so open with our hang-ups and needs for grace, and I want us to be so joyful in the gospel that we can just 
Heap mountains of grace on one another with patience and kindness and joy. Is that weird? Probably. That's why we have to trust God's Holy Spirit to do it. Because I'm not sure we can fake it and get our way there. So, in closing, I'll just say this. As we see in the Old Testament, God is shaping his people to be joyful worshipers, joyful stewards, and a joyful community. We can't do that on our own. We need God to do something for us. That's why Jesus came, and Jesus was the ultimate joyful worshiper of God. Jesus was the ultimate joyful steward of God. Jesus is ultimately calling the community of joy together. And if you were a Christian, you were in that community. It was my hope and prayer that God's Holy Spirit would ignite our hearts and minds with great joy. That we would just be constantly wrecked by the gospel. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Do nothing out of obligation. Do nothing out of religious fear or religious pride. Rather, do everything out of a joyful response from the gospel of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think God could do some incredible, amazing things in our midst. I think individuals would be changed. I think couples, marriages would be changed. I think families would be changed. I think this community, this church, would be just changed for the gospel. I think the city would be changed. I think there would be an international impact from the joy of the gospel. I think in places like Uganda and Afghanistan and Busan, South Korea, where we have friends laboring for the kingdom right now. So, all that to say, if you're not a believer, this is what we're tossing out there for you. Not a list of rules and obligations, but a person to whom you relate to God so that you can find your ultimate joy. If you were here and you are a Christian like me, it's my hope and prayer that we would humbly cry out to God that he would stir us up to be a joyful people, joyfully worshiping, joyful stewards. But as my hope and prayer, we need to repent of sin, repent of hardness, repent of pride and fear, and turn to Jesus, turn uh, to the grace of the gospel. We do that in many ways here on a Sunday to remember um, if you're a believer before you see the Lord's Supper, we have wine, juice, and bread. This represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. This is this is how, this is through whom we have a relationship with God the Father. This is the way that we find true joy and worship, stewardship, and community. So if you're a believer, we invite you to come partake. If you're not a believer, we ask you to stay where you are and observe. There is a giving basket in the back. If you are part of the ministry of redemption, we ask that you give as God leads you. If you are not part of the ministry of redemption, or if you're not a believer, we're not asking for money at all. We're asking folks to respond in joyful stewardship, and, and that's for believers. So if you're not, we don't want your money. Also, it's a time to worship through singing and through prayer. And if you have children in the Redemption Kids Ministry, you can go retrieve them and bring them back in so they can participate in this part of the worship service. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for the grace that is found in Christ. Lord, I pray uh, for each of us here. God, if there are non-believers in our midst, God, I pray that you would give them an understanding of your gospel in their hearts and minds. God, 
in Christ, they are forgiven of sin, that they are free from fear and pride, that they are accepted and loved and cherished by their Heavenly Father for all eternity. So God, I pray that that good news would resonate with those who don't yet know you. God, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would re- uh, cause us to be uh, convicted of sin, God, that we would repent of pride, repent of fear, repent of um, obligation, repent of joylessness and uh, laziness and, God's cynical hearts, sarcastic attitudes, grumpiness. God, I pray that we would find our ultimate joy in you. Jesus, I thank you that you've saved us to be your people. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. I pray that we would be reflective image bearers to reflect the goodness of God to a lost and broken and hurting world. God, that you would give us joy as we worship because of who you are and what you've done for us. God, that you give us joy as we steward things because we know that our ultimate inheritance is not here now, but it's for eternity that you've secured for us because you are Lord of all heaven and of all earth. And so, God, I thank you that you've given us an opportunity to steward resources and time and money and talent and relationships and opportunities. God, I pray that we will be wise and zealous stewards of what you lay before us, that we would point others to you and serve others out of the joy of the gospel. God, I do pray that we would be a joyful community, Lord, that we would grow in holiness together as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, that we would come together in our differences, our different sin, our different hang-ups, our different brokenness, our different attitudes, our different ethnicities and spiritual background. But God, we would see the common joy of the gospel that in Christ we are all loved and accepted. And God, that we would grow in repentance and belief and faith and joy. So God, I pray that you would stir us up now during this time of response. We thank you that you are good and holy. Christ's name, amen.